It looks like a slime mold for your foot and I don't enjoy it. I don't know what to tell you. I don't want to put, I don't want, I don't want it. Welcome back to Texas Please, the podcast where your hosts know exactly which pair of Yeezys Jack Zimmerman owns. Today, we're going to be talking about strip number 217, graduation. Speaking of Yeezys, this strip was originally posted on February 24th, 2015. I'm secret OMG and and you're not. I'm not. It's true. I'm Tomato, and for anyone interested, it's the Yeezy Boost 350 V2 Semi-Frozen Yellow. Ugh. In this strip. Biddy opens the strip by telling his vlog audience that he only has a second to record because it's graduation day. Does he just upload these things without editing them, by the way? Anyway, he's about to meet the Zimmermans and George for commencement. After we see Jack and Shitty in their graduation gear and Alicia and George in a friendly moment, Jack and Biddy share a heartfelt goodbye and a hug. Biddy mumbles some ellipses and adjusts Jack's tie while Jack assures Biddy that he'll visit before the NHL season starts. Biddy turns away, crying. A few minutes later, Jack's dad tells him to really say goodbye and Jack rushes off after Biddy. This whole intro is weird. It's decidedly like Biddy being name droppy. And I guess part of it is that metatextually he needs to let the audience know that he's walking over with Jack and Jack's crew. But why is he telling his audience this? The framing of this particular strip gets into some weird territory and and we'll talk about it. But I don't understand, as usual, the introduction via the vlog, particularly when he says, you know, I only have a little bit of time. So I I really don't understand. It's not like this is live streaming, right? This is like something he edits and uploads. I, I really don't understand that. He's leaving immediately after graduation. So maybe he wants to just record something in his room for the last time over the summer but again he can sit down and write out a script and like record whatever he wants to whenever he wants to so obviously all of these vlogs if we're accepting that they're happening you know because biddy is a a real person with motivations his motivations are that these vlogs help build his online identity in a sort of parasocial way where letting his audience in on these details however guardedly helps foster a sort of intimacy between him and his audience that fosters the audience in turn i don't know this doesn't actually sound like what any youtubers i listen to talk like it sounds like somebody giving ham-fisted exposition in a webcomic it sounds like exactly one youtuber i've ever listened to lonely girl 15 who you may remember was indeed scripted and therefore full of ham-fisted exposition that's it all right well now that we're on this panel we're going to just very briefly revisit our recurring segment what is biddy wearing watch And all I have to say is that what he's wearing is a suit jacket and a bow tie. And he looks like the mayor of Munchkin Land or Tucker Carlson. What's the difference, really? He just looks like, you know, the English teacher in the late 1940s musical or 
the chaperone at the school dance in West Side Story. I guess that's the same thing. It's the look on his face that really does it. Like the bow tie is one thing, but then he has this sort of worried, earnest look. I think the like ambiguously queer English teacher from from some sort of coming of age novel. Like, yes, I think that's very appropriate. I mean, if you look at Biddy in this panel, I think you're just like, all right, well, that's what Biddy would wear, I suppose. But it's a red bow tie with an aqua shirt, a navy blazer, khakis, and a pocket square. He looks like he both runs and is the president of a yacht club. I guess that justifies that fic I wrote where Jack buys him a yacht. Look, we have to move on. Long story short, he looks... He sure looks. That's the end of that sentence. Anyway, you uh, offered the, the, what the fuck am I saying? Let me try this again. You I out- offer a lot of things to Maida, but most of them aren't really things you need. Probably true. However, one of the things that I know that you do offer is an explanation of how commencement and graduation works in the U.S. So you, you want to bring us through it? Well, I think this is less about the U.S. generally, but specifically what I think is going on here is that the way that Samwell graduation works is based very, very transparently on Ngozi's experience at Yale. And what happens at Yale is their commencement festivities sort of span a couple days. On Sunday, they have what's called class day. And from the Yale website, a Yale college tradition includes the awarding of academic, artistic, and athletic prizes, the celebration of undergraduates, and an address by a notable speaker. Seniors wear academic gowns with headgear of choice. And then the graduation proper is the next day. And that's where the awarding of degrees will happen. And... You see in year four, when Biddy is graduating, the scenes of him speaking are happening over class day. What's happening in this particular strip, 2.17, is graduation proper where degrees are being awarded. Class day has happened already off page on Biddy's Twitter. And the headgear of choice that Jack and Shitty have worn are their hockey helmets. And that communicates a slightly more informal event. Whereas to graduation specifically, students wear mortarboards, you know, those flat hats that maybe you'd call graduation caps, you know, the things that you associate with cap and gown garb. Not going to get into a history of what that is. Class day is where Jack wins the best male athlete award as Biddy tweets. He says that Jack is said to have won the award for an unprecedented three years of captaincy and exhibiting outstanding character on and off the field of play. So I guess the Samwell administration has not been paying very close attention to check, please. I guess at Yale, and I suppose we can probably also presume Samwell because this thing is mapped pretty closely on the Yale model. Typically at graduation, or at least at my graduation, you get a very distinguished speaker who gives a keynote and they are awarded an honorary degree. At Yale, it seems that happens not at graduation proper, but on class day. So interestingly enough, 
I thought it was kind of funny to look up who gave the speech to the class of 2015 at Yale. And it was current U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. Then current U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. Yes, I, I meant I meant current to 2015. So I guess you have to presume that he also gave the 2015 class day speech at Samwell. Okay, so here's who goes to graduation this year in the audience. Jack's mom, Jack's dad, Jack's future boss, all of Jack's roommates, other friends of Jack's. My college graduation was from a very enormous U.S. university, and we were not allowed to invite that many people. We had sort of two graduation ceremonies. There was one for the college that you were in, where you were actually awarded your degree, and then the whole university's commencement, where people were not individually awarded their degrees, but that was where you had your speaker and where all the sort of honorary degrees were conferred, and the president gave an address, et cetera, et cetera. And we were allowed a limit of four guests at our diploma acceptance ceremony or whatever, and then two to the all-university graduation. And this was really awkward because two tickets went to my parents, two tickets went to one set of my grandparents. I couldn't invite the other set of my grandparents, so I had to just exclude half of my grandparents. And then also my sister, they just couldn't come to my graduation. But Jack is able to invite, you know, whoever, which I think is very funny. I guess Samwell is a much nicer school or a much smaller school or something. I guess this is just how Yale is. It's a big community and underclassmen attend graduation regularly, I'm sure. But the idea that I would have attended the graduations of my older friends who were graduating when I was an underclassman, absolutely never. But I guess Yale is a tighter community and that maybe carries over into Samwell. Do you think that Yale really does have sort of expansive room for people to attend graduation? Or do you think that's like a fictional choice in order to get everyone in the same panel? Well, I think the fictional choice is inviting George and not inviting a bunch of people who you'd presume would have been to Jack's graduation. Like, does he have any family other than his parents? Does he have grandparents? Does he have cousins or anyone like that? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe his parents are only children and their parents are dead. I'm not sure because it's not relevant to this comic. Commencements, very excruciatingly boring, almost always, with rare exceptions in my experience. Toni Morrison came to my school one year and she was cool, but everybody else, horrible. And I feel like, although I'm excited for Jack that so many people showed up for his special day, it is unlikely that your future boss would put themselves through this as we talk about George, because it's actually not a particularly sentimental or enjoyable experience for the audience. In my experience as someone who sat through several commencements and whose grandparents had no interest in coming to my graduation, for example. I don't think that commencements or graduations are uniformly boring. I think it depends very much on how long the ceremony is, what the content is, whether or not the speakers are actually good. And I know that sounds like, oh, of course they wouldn't be, but it really varies on the person. And then I think it also probably has something to do with how invested are you in the school and how tight a community is the school. I went to a very, very large 
undergraduate university. And so it didn't matter how invested I was in the school, sitting there for hours and hours while names upon names were read. And I went to the smallest college within the university. That was never going to be interesting because I knew maybe four people in that college. So it was mostly just like me sitting there with no friends in an audience. So my parents could see a picture of me shaking hands with the dean, getting a diploma, not wearing a hat. But I had different experiences at other graduations, either because I was there with my friends and the whole thing was just kind of funny. Or when I graduated from high school, I graduated from a very small school. I not only was very invested in all of the traditions and the entire enterprise, but I intimately knew every single person who was speaking and exactly what they were speaking about. So that was very meaningful. And when I got a PhD, I didn't bother even going for various reasons. I spoke in haste, but I will say that in my experience of attending graduations that I personally was graduating, my high school graduation was excruciatingly boring. My university graduation, I didn't even go to the big commencement. I went to my department commencements and then I went to women's college within the university and I went to that commencement. That was pretty excruciatingly boring. But When I was a high school teacher, I attended all of those graduations because my students were graduating and because I was really invested in those kids. You're right. It was like a particular experience. I just get the feeling that Samwell is very much like Yale. And I think a lot of these highly elite, very old tradition steeped institutions are really great at building a sense of community and really making you feel like you are invested in the place and you are invested in the people. And the idea that you have gone to Yale or gone to Samwell or gone to some other smaller school is definitely a binding resonant experience where everything that's being said to you and about you from the stage at this commencement ceremony probably is deeply meaningful and a really good opportunity to reflect on what you've been through. Whereas the school that I went to was just a big anonymous research university. Whereas I have to guess that if you're graduating from Samwell, which seems like a place where there's a couple thousand people in the undergraduate student body, you've probably seen the same people over and over again every day, circling in and out of various spaces. Probably there's something really interesting about seeing all of these people you've been seeing every day for four years graduating. Most of the people whose names are being read off, even if you don't know the person that well, it's probably there's something familiar, like you've heard that name or you've seen that person. Oh, it's that guy. I haven't seen him since freshman year. It's like something about a small school and the sense of community and like belonging and relevance and meaning. I'm realizing I've only ever been to fairly large public schools and I just looked up the difference between my undergrad university and Yale. My undergrad university has 50,000 undergraduate students at any time and Yale has not even 6,000. So huge difference, (laughs) completely different experience. Of course, that totally makes sense, but that's outside of my wheelhouse completely. Jack, have everybody come with you. Why not? 
Bring your boss. Sure. Why is she there? I mean, I think narratively there are, I guess, okay reasons, which are like, okay, you know, we're remembering that George exists. We're developing emotions about her and the fact that she's spending this time with Jack. It's a reminder that Jack's going into the Falks and that we know who the Falks are. If we were supposed to have a different kind of relationship with George, where Jack's sexuality and his experience of sharing his sexuality was different than how it actually ends up going. We would need to be reminded that George is in Jack's corner. And then having George attend his graduation ceremony kind of positions her as like a member of his close circle or his family and prepares us to understand the Falks as an extension of that family. So I think there are like reasonable narrative reasons for having her there, but I think logistically it makes no sense. There's just something completely nuts to me about inviting your boss to your college graduation. Did you invite your boss to your college graduation? Comment below. But really, did Jack invite her? Was he like, oh, you know, I guess I'm going to be on her team. I'd like to invite her to my graduation. Or was she like, hey, Jack, can I come to your graduation? Which of those is less weird? Also, Yale's graduation is on a Monday. Class day is Sunday. Graduation is Monday. So if we're presuming that this school basically follows the pattern of the school that most directly inspired it, this woman who is the assistant general manager of a hockey team took a Monday off in the middle of the playoffs to go watch Jack be on stage for like, 22 seconds. I guess maybe if I think about it, I don't know, Bob Zimmerman seems pretty important in the industry. Hobnobbing with him isn't the worst thing in the world. But this woman is going to like the life milestones of all 20-something people on her hockey team. It's a business. No, it's completely bonkers. I'm sorry, it's bonkers. There is no world in which this makes sense outside of the context of a romance comic where logistics don't matter and only feelings matter. There's no reason for her to be there in terms of plot mechanics. What does she add or subtract from this particular strip? And the answer is nothing. If you took her out, it would mean nothing. Well, there I beg to differ because we almost passed the Bechdel test in this strip and without her, that would never have happened. I don't know if there's such a thing as almost passing the Bechdel test. I think you pass it or you fail it. Yeah, that's probably true. But one woman said one thing to another woman, Alicia, talking to George about Samwell. And then it's not until George answers that Jack gets mentioned. So it's so close. And I feel excited by that. When was the last time we had two women in one frame? Uh... <laughs> I think it might have been with March and April. That's what I think too. Yeah. Important recurring characters, March and April. Well, here she is. Alicia Zimmerman. We have very important things to discuss about Alicia Zimmerman. I would like to acknowledge that the Bechdel test has limitations and that's great because we didn't pass it. So uh, good, get rid of that litmus test anyway. But I'm very excited to discuss several things about Alicia Zimmerman. A, her wolf eyes, which are not as creepy as Jack's wolf eyes, but do exist. B, the fact that she's like, ah, oh, that old Zimmerman charm in the blog post. She's apparently completely oblivious that her husband just told Jack to go get some 
and then see what she's wearing. I think this is very important. We can get to other things like, you know, is she a good mom? Does she have a career and an interiority? Like, who cares about that? So please tell me about Alicia Zimmerman's fashion choices. Oh my God. I'm not sure if you wrote, what is she wearing on this outline? Because you knew I had been waiting the entire time I've been in this fandom to tell somebody what she is wearing. But what she is wearing is a exact copy of a dress that Michelle Obama wore in 2013 from ASOS. And I think this is so stupid. It's not that she doesn't look good. Like she's standing there, she's wearing a dress seems classy. You know, she seems relatively well-off suburban mom look. She's got the hair. But ASOS is an online fast fashion retailer. And the reason why Michelle Obama would wear cheapo fast fashion clothes sometimes while she was first lady of the United States was because seeming relatable and approachable was a matter of statecraft. She has to wear many different outfits all of the time and all of them need to send some kind of message about her values and American values way more than what you and I communicate through what we wear because we're not being scrutinized that frequently. Like, yes, I'm wearing my gay news sweatshirts that I wear five out of six nights a week and I don't you appear to be wearing a blanket. Literally, she's like wrapped in a throw. But for somebody who is under that much scrutiny and whose main media role is communicating tacit messages, like subliminal messages about what the values of the presidential administration are through what they're wearing, it makes a lot of sense that Michelle Obama would wear something that is similar to, if not the same as, what the average American working woman would wear. I cannot believe that the ex-model wife of one of the most famous hockey players would go online and buy this dress from ASOS and then wear it to her son's college graduation and also an alumni function. I'm not trying to be a snob. There's nothing wrong with wearing affordable clothing. Indeed, most people don't have an endless budget to buy whatever kind of clothing they want to. Although it is true that if you can afford not to buy fast fashion, you probably shouldn't. It's kind of a deeply wasteful industry that uses very coercive labor practices on the other side of the world to basically make cheap shit that'll just cycle in and out of people's closets. It's a big problem. So it's also not great, but I'm not saying that just because this is a cheap dress means that she shouldn't be wearing it. What I'm saying is I just don't believe it for this character. Even not knowing that much about her, knowing what kind of character she's supposed to be, I just cannot imagine that she would wear a dress she bought from an internet fast fashion company. What about the construction of her character makes you say that? Because I actually agree, but I don't know why. I just sort of instinctively agree. And I'm curious if you have any more thoughts about that. Well, we don't know that much about this character, do we? So I'm largely basing my understanding on the kind of character that she's supposed to represent. She is a woman with a lot of money who is 
very visible in a role that primarily necessitates that she looks good and to a lesser extent looks expensive. She has gone to this very elite liberal arts college So she probably wants to embody a certain sort of class reading in how she dresses herself. And my guess is that she lives in Montreal and Montreal is like a really cool, really hip cutting edge city that has really interesting little stores and big fancy department stores. And you just kind of have to imagine that a woman with this much money who exists in this particular socioeconomic context probably patronizes those stores and not ASOS. I'm not saying it's impossible. I just think Ngozi probably saw a picture of Michelle Obama wearing this particular dress, thought it looked pretty good, and then drew it on this character and never expected that anybody would look into what this was actually a reference to, let alone recognize it. Yeah, it's the belt that really makes it because she's wearing exactly the same belt as Michelle Obama is in the picture that you sent me. Um, Yeah, it's like styled the same way. Based on my explorations of Janet Gretzky's Instagram, I believe very much this construction of Alicia's relationship to fashion. I was just curious. I also wanted to say quickly, just a brief note on hockey wag if you will. Most hockey wives and girlfriends are not actually world famous models and they're not A-list actresses. Although they do sometimes have creative projects that they do or their own careers, they're usually not particularly well known in their field. And there are several reasons for this, including if one person in a partnership has a super, super demanding job where they're out of their home for many months of the year and they have like kids, it's often difficult for the other partner to also have a very demanding job where they're also out of their home a lot. But the fandom often constructs Alicia as very famous, very famous. And I don't know that we can actually say for sure whether or not that's true based on what canon gives us or what the paratexts give us. But given the broader context of what hockey wives and girlfriends tend to do, it's unlikely that she is that famous. Excuse the use of this term. It just means what it says. I think the sort of most prominent hockey wag is Carrie Underwood, who is a relatively popular country singer who is married to a hockey player named Mike Fisher, who I think is retired now. In fact, he's not only retired tomato, he's re-retired. Twice retired? I'm not going to look much farther into it. Anyway, I think within country music, Carrie Underwood is relatively well regarded and I think she's a very successful country music artist in her own right but I could not name one Carrie Underwood song and the only reason why I know that she is married to an NHL guy or a re-re-retired NHL guy is because people have cited her as probably the best known NHL wag. My guess is unless you're really truly into like NHL RPS level fandom, you cannot name who the most popular and well-known hockey players are dating. I know that Sidney Crosby and Jonathan Taves have girlfriends. I don't know who they are. Like, I I couldn't tell you who they are. They're just blonde women who keep a low profile. And 
I'm sure they're like nice, lovely, capable women, or maybe they're not. So maybe what I should say is I'm sure it's possible that they're nice, lovely, capable women, but they're not women who I really know who they are, what they're up to. Janet Gretzky seems to be the model for Alicia Zimmerman, or maybe the closest thing. And even though, yes, Uncle Wayne, as is mentioned in the strip, exists in the Check Please universe. Bad Bob is to a certain extent modeled on Wayne Gretzky. And it is true that Wayne Gretzky married a woman named Janet Jones, who was a model actress. And she was not an unsuccessful model actress. Throughout the 1980s, she worked relatively consistently. It seemed like she had a lot of jobs. But the jobs she had were not blockbuster starring roles in things. They were not even supporting level roles. So, for example, she was in your favorite movie, Grease 2. And the character who she played in Grease 2, according to the entry for Grease to on Wikipedia is listed as the girl who missed her last two periods uncredited. So it's not that she wasn't in movies. She had a career. And as a working actress, I think you could call that successful. But it's not like superstardom. It's not like a supermodel. And it's not like people are talking about Janet Gretzky and thinking about what kind of career she would have had if she hadn't married Wayne Gretzky. There's a difference between being a working model and or a working actress and being really super famous in your own rights. And I think it's highly unlikely outside of the fictional wish fulfillment structure that Check Please has built up around it that Jack's mom is let's say of an equivalent level of fame and renown as her husband. It's probably more likely that she, up until the time when she married Bob and or had a kid, had a relatively consistent and very productive working career. The thing I always like to imagine for her is that she consistently worked as a model in things like perfume ads or whatever. She wasn't like, you know, a Claudia Schiffer. But, you know, I don't want to imply that women need to keep working forever for their whole lives if they don't have to. If you don't need to work and you're not getting anything out of it, by all means, don't. Do whatever you feel like. And I also don't want to imply that there's no good reason to walk away from a very promising or high-profile career. But in general, people who are Julia Roberts-level famous don't just stop in their prime. They continue being famous and they keep going. And obviously there's different levels of fame and this isn't like a you're famous or you're not famous. But what's frustrating about Alicia as a character is, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing to indicate. I mean, the reason why this discussion about what her deal is, is circling what her deal probably should be is because there's nothing actually textual about her in the canon to indicate this either way. All we know is that from adjacent texts, she was an actress slash model, which could mean a lot of different things. However, she's also a Samwell alum, and I think that's kind of interesting and maybe underdeveloped. I think that we get 
just enough information about both of Jack's parents to be very enticing. And then we kind of never see the development of that. And Alicia absolutely has this. I think it's really interesting if we think about her relationship to Samwell. If you think about that fairy tale strip, you know, the hockey prince right at the beginning and how Samwell is constructed as the land of his mother, the queen, right? The land of Jack's mother. Obviously, that's also referencing the fact that it's in the U.S., but there's a particular interesting thing happening there. It's like kind of delicious in a strange way that in this moment, which is supposed to be Jack's moment, and I know that Alicia is just sharing some fun information with George, but there's something kind of delicious to me about the fact that she's claiming expertise about a school she hasn't been to in, you know, 35 or 40 years. That's fascinating to me. Although it's also completely understandable and a thing that someone would do, right? But I think it says something about both her relationship to this place and then Jack's relationship to this place and possibly Jack's relationship to her. If you think back to, I think it's 1.5, Bad Bob Zimmerman, maybe it's 1.6. We talked a bit when we did that episode about how there's some deleted tweets from Ngozi stating that she and Bob are the same age. And Bob would have been born in 1957. So she would have been at Samwell in like the mid 70s. So yeah, at the point when this strip is happening, it's maybe like 35 to 40 years, depending on when she would have gone to college, especially if she had a modeling career or something. But I think it's interesting that she feels this way about Samwell, that she's very excited to talk about the school itself, because I think this is very much in line with how this kind of school works, the same way that we just spent too long discussing why you would be invested in the community enough to find the graduation ceremony interesting. I have sat in on meetings with administrators at, say, my undergraduate university who worked on fundraising and development. And all I can say is that that's the strategy to create the idea that students are perpetually students of the institution and thus have like a stake in the university. She's gone through this college where she's been made to feel that as soon as she steps back on campus, she's reactivated as a welly. That's the brand of loyalty that this school is building. And I think this is a lot of why schools like Yale, like Harvard, presumably like Samwell is supposed to be, have a lot of legacy students. I think that's absolutely true. I still think as far as thinking about Jack's relationship with his parents, it's really interesting that his two fields that we see him in, his two comfort zones, Samwell and hockey, are both things each of his parents can in some way rightfully claim some kind of expertise about. And I think that's especially interesting thinking about the fact that he is their adult child, but he has this experience of mental illness and this past of needing their care you know, beyond the point where he was a legal adult who by all intents and purposes, if his life had gone a different way, would have been taking care of himself. Well, I think this is just supposed to be like a fun little dip of a moment into, you know, this other relationship with Samwell and this fun feeling of community. But I think it ends up adding this really enticing, delicious tidbit about Jack's deeply strange relationship with authority and his parents, uh, as I understand it. I also wonder, and I realize that this is just speculation at this point, 
because there's nothing about it in the comic. To what extent Alicia's being involved in and or a benefactor of this school as an alumni has something to do with the fact that Jack was admitted there. And like, unfortunately, we have just literally no canon information about why he went to this school specifically, if he was considering other schools, how much of it at the time was he genuinely thought this was a big plan to get directly into the NHL by taking a circuitous route through college, or he thought he had to go play college hockey in order to figure out what it was that he wanted. But, you know, it just seems like somebody who didn't have a traditional high school career would have had to work really, really hard to get into a school like this. And as with the hockey, I'm sure having a mother who had gone to the school would be an asset. I'm convinced. I think, I think it's true. I think you characterize this as getting her involved in the alumni community bequests category only. And I like really think that that is funny and very potentially interesting way to think about it. I think there's enough scrutiny on the financial situations of colleges at this point, And there has been for the past couple of decades that I don't think transactions are as straightforward as if I give you half a million dollars, will you let my son in? Like, I think that's a little too transparent and overt, especially if the student truly has no merits and absolutely doesn't belong there at all. But yeah, I I mean, something that colleges do wait is legacy. Is this student going to be a productive member of the school community? And if they're coming from a family where their parent has demonstrated that their family is committed to furthering the school's goals through involvement or money or whatever it is, then yeah, collectively, that's the point in favor of the students. And he also seems to be pretty good at hockey. I mean, you can really only imagine how prepared a guy who would have barely gone to high school on the side while he was playing professional hockey and then didn't do anything academic for two and a half years while he was coaching a hockey team would do in college. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a pretty tough road to hoe. I think there's been some illuminating pop journalism, I guess is what I would call it, about this topic, especially since the scandal broke. You know, those actresses and then other wealthy people who paid to falsify SAT scores and also to falsify sports recruitment photos and, and so on and so forth. I don't remember the name of either of the actresses who got slapped on the wrist for this, but... One of them was Felicity Huffman of... Of Sports Night fame. Oh, I was going to say of Trans America fame. What a career. Anyway, there's been some pieces about educational spending and the legal 
ways you can do that. So it is a long history of donating money to colleges and then somehow your child who may or may not have merit depending on how much money you've offered sort of eventually ending up at that school, whether through legal means or illegal means. I think the situation with that college scandal was effectively the parents were literally paying a company to falsify admissions concoct fake SAT scores because they were taken by somebody else and make up athletic or extracurricular activities out of whole cloth. But what I'm saying is that in the wake of that scandal, there was transparency related journalism about the legal ways that you can get your kid into a school site. Oh yeah. The thing is, this is a long standing thing, not even an open secret. I think it's just known that if you are a family that has a tie to an institution, you're more likely to be able to get your kids in there. A very famous example being Jared Kushner. The fact is everybody. This is the thing essentially that Shitty as a character is embodying. His family has this particular kind of relationship to Harvard and Shitty basically for college says, fuck that and goes to a different school but then he eventually ends up back at Harvard. I can't stress the extent to which this is not new. This is what the systemic problem in academia is. If you want to put this framework on it, all of these colleges have had affirmative action the whole time, but the people who their actual affirmative action is benefiting is the children of the families that have been going to the schools for generations. Basically, every family in U.S. history that you can think of that you could describe as dynastic effectively is in this position. Sad to report, my family was not in that position, or I would have really enjoyed taking advantage of it. And usually it is tied to money. It's usually tied to financial support. But depending on the school, not always. The high school I went to, I went to a very small private high school that had a educational progressive philosophy. And they basically felt like they took families, like they admitted families. And the reason why is because the kind of holistic education practices they were trying to enact were based upon the idea of community support. So they didn't just want families who were going to send one kid to school and then the kid would graduate and then they'd never hear from them again. They wanted people who were basically going to be hands-on volunteers and room coordinators. And yes, you know, at a certain level, people who would donate money, but also time, time and energy. And now we're talking about a relatively smaller school than say Yale or whatever, But yeah, you know, on one hand, this is a really nice idea and there is some truth to it. The people you want in your community as an educational institution are people who are committed to the institution and willing to uphold its values, especially if those values are things like education is the concern of developing a holistic character. That's in theory a really nice idea. I'm not even going to say in theory it's a nice idea. It's a really nice idea 
idea. A big school that basically is tasked with pumping out degrees and the people who go there treat it as, you know, a relatively revolving door that doesn't necessarily foster a financial windfall in terms of alumni support. And it makes, again, the experience on campus feel really fragmented and disjointed. And as a result, from going to a school that didn't really have that strong culture, I ended up feeling kind of like, fuck this place. At the same time, this is sort of what fosters this systemic feeder system where the same people from the same families just revolving door through the same institution. And a lot of those spaces are being taken up by people who basically feel as though they're owed a place and the school feels as though it owes them a place. So it's like a really, really endemic, ingrained issue in American education. And... I imagine that something about the fact that Jack's mother went to this school is what got him into this school. And I think some of the discourse around this college admission scandal is a good news hook to remind people that this is the system, but it's not new journalism. It's something that is relatively well known about American education. Oh yeah. There are some good pieces about it that have been written since that scandal though. I worked at a newspaper. This is what we wrote about like constantly. This is the major question. How do you balance both wanting to diversify your student body and extend new opportunities to populations that haven't had access to this kind of education while also maintaining the kind of donor network and holistic community values that a certain group of alumni have fostered generationally. I will also say that the school I went to was a big state university with an extensive but not especially robust alumni community. So I I think that probably very different from both your large university that you went to, but then especially different from Yale or Samwell. The conditions surrounding that school are like really particular to that school. But all I have to say is that it basically lacked what Samwell is depicted having, which is a real sense of loyalty and comfort to and familiarity with the school and a commitment to the school's values. I think most people with my larger university basically felt like the idea that the school had any specific values whatsoever never occurred to them. And it was effectively just something to do to get a bachelor's degree. That's interesting, because I would say that it felt like my undergrad university had values. And part of it was because they had signs everywhere. There's a very specific effort to extend that educational community, both to people who had not previously had access to that or whose parents did not have access to that kind of community. And then there was a very specific ethos of that university as it exists within the city it's in. So I actually feel quite different. I do think that we're kind of spinning out, especially since we have another probably like 70 pages of notes on incest. But it's interesting and relevant insofar as we're trying to wrap our minds around what the character of Alicia Zimmerman means within this comic. And in fact, does she mean 
anything and why does it matter that Jack has this mother who went to this school especially since she's barely a character and all I can say is that I think your point that Jack got so far in hockey because of his dad's importance to hockey it's also Jack is at this school doing this because his mother went to this school it's just doubling down on the idea that Jack is to a great extent given the benefit of his parents experiences but I think the sort of wrap-up question on her I really want to ask is why you think that she's characterized as this huge superstar so frequently in Sheck Please fandom the comic never states and none of the paratext ever states that she's a big box office draw or anything like that so that's purely fanon. I think there's a couple reasons. I think first of all, in fanfic, especially fanfic that's not trying to be subversive, everyone becomes the shiniest and most sexy and most, you know, spectacular versions of themselves. So I think taking what we know about Alicia and then turning it up to 11, for lack of a better phrase, is what fanfic does a lot of the time. I think that there's a certain glamour in imagining her as famous that's very appealing. And that also gives you a lot to work with if you want to write about her as a character. This is where it gets a little fuzzier for me, but I think there's some kind of media that fanfic falls into as well, where there's an escapist quality. Romance novels also fall into this. And in that kind of media that's escapist in particular ways, family dynasties of success are really appealing and often appear. And I think Jack being the ultra successful son of these two ultra successful people is part of that pattern. But then I think in kind of like a metatextual sense, the fact that she does not exist in canon at all, hardly, except for a few brief scenes, is very dissatisfying for a lot of the people in the fandom because a lot of the people in the fandom want to write and think about women characters. And so I think offering her this glamorous life outside of the comic is actually making up for her absence in the comic. It's not necessarily meant to be a commentary in the comic, but it kind of acts like one. If she can't be present in the comic, then she's going to have this fabulous life outside of it. To me, you could have an interesting, a fulfilling, a glamorous, a fabulous life without basically being the most famous and most important superstar in your field. And something that bothers me about what ends up happening with Check Please as we get into years three and four is that it's not good enough for Jack and or Biddy to be pretty good at things or improving at things or doing their best, but there's some things they just can't master right away. Everybody just has to win. Everybody just has to be delivered whatever the most fantastical, unrealistic success is in every given context. So many of these fanfics where she's just drawn as this flawless, megawatt celebrity in her own right aren't very interesting to me not because I don't think it's nice to see awesome ladies 
or whatever, but more so because a woman who has complicated feelings about the fact that, yeah, she had an okay career, you know, as a model or whatever, but she was smart. She went to this really elite college and had a good experience. She had a good career and she spends some of her time wondering, why did I back away from whatever my potential could have been basically to be this man's wife and this guy's mother only for my kid to end up killing himself or attempting to kill himself. It's it's like so many different interesting facets of this woman's interiority you could explore in fanfic. And it ends up just getting reduced to, no, she's the queen, bow down. I'm gonna say something really controversial and I'm sorry. Sometimes fanfic is not a project of interiority. And it's not a project of exploring the facets of the character. I like it to be that. That's what I prefer fanfic to be, but it's not always. And I think for some people, that sort of tension in that character is not escapist enough for whatever their project of fandom is, you know? And then furthermore, I'm going to say, I feel pretty comfortable saying this. A lot of people aren't so good at writing women. That's not always true. There's some like amazing fanfics actually that explore Alicia as a character and diving into who she is and what she wants and how complicated she is. But I think the comic does not do a great job of constructing its women characters. I think fandom often does not do an amazing job of constructing women characters if they are background or somehow otherwise not the central figures. Even if they are the central figures, even if it's fem slash, it's not always like they're so well constructed. And then I think especially mothers and adult women with complicated feelings about womanhood, that is not well written about by many people, including in published literary fiction that's won awards and whatever. So I think in fandom, it's it's not that no one does explore that. And in fact, I think it's often explored to great effect when the author wants to, but it's not thick on the ground anywhere, especially motherhood. I think motherhood is this thing that people write about in really weird ways. I mean, I agree that there are some like really interesting fix that explore Alicia. Sometimes she gets characterized really well. I like it when she's a little bit flawed. And I'm not saying this is a bad person. Like we don't know enough about her in the comic, but look at this blonde haired, blue eyed, extremely conventionally attractive woman who is probably very wealthy. I'm not saying that nobody who's blonde and skinny and beautiful with a lot of money, I'm not saying that that kind of person has to be an awful human being by default, but somebody who's lived the vast majority of their life as that kind of person probably has possibly even unbeknownst to them, developed a certain kind of relationship to the rest of the world. I think that it's rare to find people interested in the project of writing women in complex ways, but they do exist and they're often really interesting. Before this particular strip was posted, even though the picture of her much, much earlier in the comic, before this particular strip was posted, there are a couple people in fix who tried to take a stab at imagining what she was like as a character. I remember reading one fic that posited that she was a plus size model, which was an interesting choice. And then I also read another fic where she was a trans woman. Wait, she was a plus size model in the 80s? Sure. I'm not saying it was a good fic. I'm just saying it was people trying to imagine what this off-screen woman would be like. And then it's just like, nope, she's what you think a supermodel would look like. 
Well, speaking of plus size, Jack talks to his dad. Actually, I suppose it's more accurate to say Jack's dad talks to him. Very briefly, before we get to Jack and Bob's interaction, oh boy. I just briefly want to say that Jack and Biddy hug goodbye. And it's really weird for a couple of reasons. There's a square dialogue bubble here of the kind that usually notes like, hey, Biddy's talking. But what it says is a handful of goodbyes later, dot, dot, dot. We have no idea if Biddy is saying this and presumably he's not. And it really doesn't matter except that it is a very strange moment in the comic because all of a sudden Biddy leaves the scene and the perception shifts. So who is saying this and to whom? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it's Ngozi telling us what's happening, but it's constructed as like it's a thing that Biddy says and it's weird. So I find it distracting and strange and it gnaws at me a little bit. The other thing I just wanted to point out is that Jack and Biddy's goodbye hug is also very shoujo eye. And if there were flower petals falling behind them, it would be right in that category because of Biddy's little blush and playing with Jack's tie and, and so on. Yeah, I guess this like goodbye between them is supposed to be very emotionally affecting. And this emotional moment where Biddy gets choked up and can't follow through and walks away crying. And according to the blog post, what he's planning on telling Jack is you mean a lot to me. I don't know. Maybe he just thinks Jack is straight and that, you know, there's no use in basically telling Jack that he likes him, but he just wants to try to communicate to Jack that Jack means a lot to him and he can't. And it's supposed to be very meaningful, I think, because this is Biddy failing to follow through on the, the personal character needed to really be opened up and tell somebody like how you feel. And it's relatable in the sense that saying goodbye to people you care about is very hard and the idea of leaving something behind crying as you do because it's so hard is something I think I can relate to but it's also just really hard for me to like tell people how I feel even if it's just you know I really like doing this podcast with you tomato it's just like that's completely impossible for me to communicate so I think for Biddy it's more like fear or like fear of rejection or like he doesn't want to be too obvious about the fact that he's in love with Jack and probably feels stupid for it. But I think some people have a really easy time talking about their feelings. And for me, it's very difficult to do. So usually in this comic, I see Biddy freaking out about things and I'm just like, ugh, go die in a fire, Biddy. However, this is something that I, I really feel even though I don't know that this moment is as weighted as I think it's probably supposed to be. I think it is not as weighted as it's supposed to be because we all know what's coming, but I do think there's this nice tension. Well, we all know what's coming now, but I wonder if some people reading this for the couple of days in between this and the next strip maybe thought like, oh, that's it. Especially since, oh, there's another two years of this comic. So obviously it's like we're inching closer, but certainly Biddy's not going to be able to like get Jack now because then what's going to happen for the next two years of the story? I will say that when I was reading this and it was updating, I was not convinced they were going to kiss next, but I knew there would be some kind of emotionally resonant moment, right? Like you can tell because of the construction of this that there's going to be some kind of resolution because it's left in this moment 
of, of tension. And Ngozi hadn't yet abandoned traditional storytelling methods of tension and catharsis. You know, that's still happening at this point. So I think it's emotionally weighted, but we know it's going somewhere. Like, And we also have Ngozi's constant reassurance that it's going somewhere. So I don't think it could carry that much weight because she keeps telling us that they're going to be married. There's a big difference, I think, between it's going somewhere, but there's another two years in this comic and year two hasn't concluded yet. So how's it going to get there and when's it going to get there is like an open question versus three panels from now. I think it would be really interesting, and no, I don't have the time to do this, to dig back through maybe people's reaction posts to this comic from when it posted. Because again, obviously I know, you know, they're, they're going to get together imminently, but surely some people reading this didn't know. Something's going to happen. Yeah, you know, Jack, the, the comic ends with Jack running off panel saying, I'll be back. I think you know something's going to happen that's related to their potential romance because of what Bob says, which we'll get to in a second. Maybe, like, it's possible that some people were thinking that Jack was going to be like, goodbye, Biddle. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I do, I mean, I didn't think they were going to kiss until they kissed because I had been burned by so many things. And I, at this point, I believe they were getting together. So I, I fully buy that. I'm just, all I'm saying is that I think that the, the tension of this moment is certainly there, but I don't think it's so heavy because I think we know it's going somewhere closer to a resolution. I don't think it feels as up in the air as when Biddy gets a concussion, you like don't know what's going to happen really because that's earlier in the comic and we don't really know where it's going to go. At the tail end of this exchange, Jack saying, then my parents and George made reservations and then right down to Providence, it seems like he's being kidnapped. <laughs> This in conversation with, you know, the, the next couple of strips where he's like, oh, I have to leave. Bye. It genuinely feels like he has no autonomy. A magical thing just bloomed in my head, which is the reason that George is there. Listen, last time Jack was about to join an NHL team, he OD'd. So the reason George is there is to protect her investment in him as an employee and to make sure that he does not get alone time between being there and going to Providence to make sure that he does not make poor decisions OD adjacent. Maybe? Maybe. I mean, I don't know. But it just, it feels like he's being kidnapped. It feels like he yeah, has no free time or decision-making ability. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. That's what that would be. And that's like what part of what I mean when I say when, when you are an adult child of parents, but you have somehow done something in your life so that people no longer trust your ability to care for yourself. Your parents will sometimes do shit like this in order to ensure that you do not, you know, make decisions that could lead to you being in danger. So his lack of autonomy relates, to, I, I don't know, I feel like you just blew open like a potential reading of this that's like, oh boy, like, ooh, delicious. They don't want him to get so stressed out that he makes a bad decision and therefore they are like knuckles clenching, you know, into his time. Well, all I have to say, Tomato, is write it. Okay. All right. Well, okay. So fine, fine. So Biddy pussies out and walks away crying. And Jack is like ellipses, which is uh, the only reaction to things he ever really has. And then his father is like, hello. And he's gotten a redesign. He looks a lot better now. I wonder what people's reaction to like seeing this character was. All I remember was like, ah, a hot older man. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember. 
at the time I was like, huh, what, whatever. Okay. Cause I hadn't yet had like, you know, any revelations about Jack, Jack's relationship with his father. So I was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. But people were into it. I like how he's holding Jack's mortarboard. I like so much of what's happening here. And also it's deeply strange. Um, oh yeah, no. Well, tell us about what's strange about it, tomato. I need, okay. I need some, I need some fodder for my falling asleep sinking time later. <laughs> well, let me just give a brief overview. Jack's dad approaches Jack and says, "Oh boy, like those alumni events get longer every year. Ready to head back to the hotel." At this point, they're apparently speaking in English. Jack says, "I feel like I, I haven't really said goodbye to everyone." Please pretend that Secret is saying this with a great accent instead of me. Uh, I just, I feel like I haven't really said goodbye to everyone. Secret and I also had a, a, a discussion about how intense Bad Bob's accent was earlier today. We decided very intense. So, you know, Bad Bob says, well, it's a bit too late to take another lap around the rink. Ha ha, you know, real funny. And then Jack says, no, no debt. That's my best attempt. And then here we go. Here we go, everybody. Here we go. Bad Bob says, ah, and puts his hand on Jack's shoulder and says, you know what your uncle always says. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Jack says, what do you mean? And then Bad Bob says, I mean, go, say goodbye. We won't be back here for some time, you know? If that's what your heart is telling you, you should go. Go really say goodbye. And then Jack has a revelation and runs off. They're talking in French at this point. Oh, yes. They switch to French when he starts to say, you know what your uncle always says, they switch to French. So here's what I'm obsessed with. Jack's father, a man that Jack is textually obsessed with. We show this from the very beginning that Bad Bob is this looming figure in Jack's imaginary, you know? Bad Bob's also a looming figure in the comic too. Literally, when we see him in the Hockey Prince, he is protecting, but also shadowing Jack. And then we see, you know, his career and Jack's fears about not achieving the same kind of thing. Like he's this very big figure in the comic. The fact that this is the guy who's A, makes Jack realize he's having feelings and then B, gives him permission to pursue those feelings, makes me feel completely nuts because I think there's something really weird there about Jack's concept of attraction, the reiteration of certain kinds of power dynamics where Jack is not necessarily the person in power, and needing his dad's approval and encouragement to realize he has feelings at all, but then specifically to act on them. Like needing your dad's approval to act on romantic interests is just bonkers and also really fascinating. And also is really interesting if you think about constructions of masculinity. And listen, am I watching many episodes? episodes of Unethical Nightmare married at first sight right now and thus thinking a lot about dads and their weird relationships to their daughters getting married. Yes. So I'm sure that's informing this. But the history of daughters getting married is very specific. The constructions of narrative around daughters being given away by their fathers is deeply troubling, but also a thing. We don't really have that with men. So it's interesting that Jack's interest in someone he will eventually marry is given to him by his father in this way. Listen, I don't know. It's bonkers. Last but not least, I just briefly want to say that I think it's also really interesting that this is post-Kent Parson, because I'm assuming, based on the fact that Parse and Zimmerman were both, 
Jack and Parsons and Jack were both in Ramuski and presumably staying with Billet families and presumably not with the Zimmermans and presumably the Zimmermans were not there. How many more times can I say presumably? I assume that Kent Parsons did not get this approval or this sort of like nudge, right? That Jack actually discovered that attraction on his own. And that's really interesting because that attraction and everything that happened there eventually led to his OD and therefore now in his post-OD life, needing his father's approval and life path checking off in order to go pursue Biddy is really interesting when I compare it to what I was just talking about when I was saying like, okay, well, he's this adult child who is still weirdly being taken care of by his parents because of his history. I don't know. There's just like a morass of strange things in there. And I am really obsessed with it. And also Jack wants to fuck his dad. Thank you. So I suppose my questions for you would be about what Bob is actually saying here and what he means. Does he specifically know that Jack likes Biddy? Or is it that he specifically intuits that Jack likes someone? Or is this just a more general insight that Jack needs to go and do something? And I would presume that it was number three that Bob can read that Jack needs to settle some sort of business and get some sort of closure, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. He's just being blandly, generally encouraging. However, the blog seems to kind of imply that if he doesn't know it's specifically Biddy, then at least he knows that Jack isn't just somebody. So the blog is like, oh man, why does bad Bob get it? And then Ngozi writes, Mr. Jack's dad knows a thing or two about romancing. He didn't get that nickname just because he was good on the ice. But then it's like, okay, first of all, this character hasn't been in the comic for a while now. So I think this leads to some problems. The first and only time he's been in the comic and therefore the first and only time he's met Biddy, Bob sees him interacting with Jack and Biddy is in this aw shucks child who can't take credit for his own goal mode. And Jack is also a snitty little child. And it's implied that both Bob and Suzanne have some concept that they'd be like good on the same line. But there's nothing in that scene that resembles frisson or attraction for Bob to observe and internalize. So best case scenario, this is the comic leaving up with that and then leading us to this scene. And it's implied in the absence of development that Bob somehow has been party to their growing closeness. We know from 80 comics ago that Jack is fucked up because he wants to fuck his dad. And also that he's like fucked up because of his dad. But the comic hasn't revisited this at all in that time, really. It's been a while since the Jack having feelings about his dad thread has been pulled into the comic. So the idea that Bob has this insight into what Jack truly wants, regardless of whether it's as specific as he wants Biddy to fuck him or he's just yearning abstractly, it's not really supported by anything. And again, this could have been the development of strong character. If this is a moment where Jack finally gets that his dad is proud of him and understands him better than he's let on, that would be really awesome. But it's not because that doesn't exist in the comic. 
comic. It's just like, here comes this guy who's been off stage and not really discussed for a very long time. And all of a sudden he has a completely different relationship with his son than we saw previously. Here's the thing. I like this and I'm obsessed with it, but it doesn't actually step up. You know, it doesn't actually like add up within what we have in the comic. So I then threw it back to you. What is going on here with Bob? What is he actually getting internally? And what is he actually saying to Jack? When I first read this, I understood it as him specifically seeing something in the goodbye hug, which he recognized as Jack needing to pursue romantically. So he specifically knew that Jack liked Biddy. Again, this was before... Before I was like, ah, Jack wants to fuck his dad. So I didn't have the same emotional cascade of what's happening. But that's how I understood it in that moment. And revisiting it, I feel like, I still think that Jack's dad is being constructed here as like understanding Biddy specifically because we see Jack and Biddy have their moment and then Biddy kind of goes away crying and then we see Bob coming up to Jack afterwards and even though it says a handful of goodbyes later like I always interpreted that as as him having seen it somehow like I think it's constructed in such a way where his face is next to these two panels of Biddy and Jack's face so something about that always made me feel feel like oh he has like some kind of insight the other thing that makes me feel this is his hand on Jack's shoulder which now only supports perhaps Jack's dad also wants to fuck Jack so it's a very confusing time for them both I think in this moment that I read this as him having some kind of like we so rarely see Jack touched especially before he and Biddy get together like quite rarely do we see Jack actually like in contact with other people so there's something about this moment especially having seen this difficult relationship with his dad earlier where I don't think we saw them touch this moment seems to me to be constructing it as a moment of insight right and so that's visually with the little lines the little like ooh lines when he first puts his hand on his shoulder and then also if that's what your heart is telling you I think is also where I'm like oh he knows that Jack specifically likes Biddy or at least he likes someone and then I assume he knows it's Biddy because of having seen their interactions that felt very incoherent but that is how I understand this moment is that he's like yeah go fuck that guy or rather be fucked by him I think we need to clarify for a minute because we keep saying that like Jack wants to fuck his dad. And I I mean, I I think we've been less specific about Jack's dad wanting to fuck him. So I think like, are are we being serious? Well, that depends on the fanfic. I do not actually think that Jack and his father have any kind of incestuous relationship in the comic. I don't really want them to have any kind of incestuous relationship in the comic because incest is not really my bag. However, I do think Their relationship is strange in the comic and that one way you can look at that is through the lens of sexuality, the subconscious, trying to understand who your dad is and why you want to be in his shoes so badly. Do you want to be your dad or do you want to be with your dad? That's really the question. So I don't think Jack really wants to fuck his dad in like a concrete way where he's like, I want to consciously touch my father's dick. Ooh, no. But I do think that there's some sort of psychosexual drama playing out there. You know what I mean? What about you? Do you think they literally want to fuck each other or no? Well, obviously not textually in the comic. Obviously, I guess the author is dead. But in another way, the author is alive and tweets a lot and has a discord. And like, I'm pretty sure that that's not the authorial intent. At the same time, I definitely think that Jack's 
feelings about who he is and what he wants are very muddled up in a way that he is certainly never going to work through. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, he literally wants to have sex with his own father. But I think that the human psyche is a real mess sometimes. And somebody who is into guys and has spent the vast majority of his life subsumed by hockey in a way that is directly caused by the fact that his father is emblematic of hockey. Probably has a lot of weird things going on up there. Further to this, what I will say is you can really tell a lot about what kind of fandom Check pleases by the fact that I am pretty sure there is no incest fic about these two characters. I have been on the Check Please kink meme. I've never written anything for the Check Please kink meme. I am shocked that nobody has ever suggested Jack Bob stuff on the kink meme. That's not to say there's no like fucked up little fix where there's weird stuff happening. I think I've seen a couple fix where Bob is fucking Kent or he's fucking Biddy or something and Jack has to watch as a humiliation kink. But based on the tone of fandom that some canons develop, I'm very shocked that nobody's written a fic that's like, Jack has been sexually abused by his father. That there's like a grooming thing happening. And I'm not saying that's really great. It definitely should exist. I'm just surprised. But also, I think it really says something about what people are in this fandom for. And it's not that kind of project. There's always fights about the virality of incest fic happening on the internet. And it's like, listen... I'm not here to have that fight. But I do think that there's something to be said about if we look at sort of the backlash to Kent Parson and like the height of what I would say Check Please fandom was where the comic was still updating, people were super, super active and people were coming in and out of the fandom, but the fandom was definitely still, I think, growing or still much more present. It's not that the fandom's over, like here we are being in it and having feelings about it, but it's definitely different now that the comic's over, right? I think that that kind of fic would have received probably such intense backlash that I don't know that even if people were thinking about it and wanted it, I don't know whether they would have admitted to it. I also think, yes, the fact that nobody was talking about it anonymously, even on Dale Fandom and on or whatever, definitely says something about why people were in the fandom. I would love to read a well-done fic about this. Not because I'm so into incest. I'm, I'm actually not. I don't have any incest ships or whatever. I don't think I've ever even written any. It just seems like the kind of thing that should exist and it doesn't. It seems like a very short jump from like, yeah, given the natural canon to like, oh, actually this is like a, like a long standing grooming situation. I probably wouldn't read it if it were PWP. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm also surprised that isn't just porn but like no I mean that's what I'm talking about I guess the fandom mood is such that there really has to be some kind of consensus that it's okay to experiment fucked up thick best I think that would be interesting and fun 
Tomato, I love how every episode of this podcast we come up with like another fest we should have. I don't have the energy or time. I'm still working on finishing editing the last podcast episode because I'm a disaster. So I definitely can't run a fest anytime soon. But every time I'm like, ooh, ooh, that would be fun. Oh, I would love fucked up thick fest. I think, you know what? Put a put a pin in it, put a pin in it. I'm really just trying to say, yeah, I I agree. I think basically the implication here is that Bob knows something about Jack's feelings about Biddy. Realistically, this makes no sense because we've seen absolutely nothing to indicate that he would. He's not been in the comic. He hasn't been present. There's been sort of no demonstration of an evolution of Jack's feelings about his dad And there hasn't been any sort of process of developing an understanding on Bob's part that this is what's up with his kid. But that sort of leads naturally into this really beautiful panel where Jack has a revelatory moment. And what makes this work are a few different visual choices. One of them is Jack's father drawing his hand away from off panel. So you don't see Bob and he's withdrawing from the physical connection he had with Jack a minute ago. And obviously it's like easy to sort of analyze this as the moment when Jack is graduating, he's starting his adult life, his parents are pulling away, he's going to be maybe more independent after he gets kidnapped and forced to go to lunch. But if I were going to lunch with my boss, and my parents the idea well I guess I I don't have a boss and I don't have parents plural but the idea that somebody other than me would pick the restaurant and make the reservation is absurd but this moment where Jack is transitioning from his father's child to an independent adult man with this hand pulling away from his shoulder is really lovely. There's also the fact that Jack is depicted in the sort of clearing of the trees around the quad and the sky is clear blue where clouds are sort of parting around him and very blatantly symbolic of something opening up, things becoming clear. Jack having a moment of clarity where everything is sort of moving away so that you get a crystalline view of the situation. And then there's also these music notes that are coming from the carillon that Alicia had been talking about earlier in the strip. And these notes are like background noise. They're very faint. They're almost cloud-like, but it looks like they're sort of ringing in Jack's ears, like he's hearing something for the first time. And you can imagine via the visual exactly what this moment sounds like. The way that these notes are going sort of through his brain, it's a really lovely depiction of somebody having a moment of recognition. I think there's also something special about the musical notes. When we first see them several panels earlier, they're actually above Biddy's head. So that explicitly connects this moment to Biddy. And then I think there's also, you know, something to the fact of Carolan specifically. They are huge 
bells, you know, in like a cathedral tower, for example, that you play on a keyboard-like series of levers, essentially. And I don't know if you've ever heard Carillon sound, but they're really resounding. Like they move through your body in a physical way, if you're close, of course. But even if you're far away, they're very, you know, the way that sound waves move physically through the earth and the air, you feel them in your body in a way that you don't tend to feel higher pitches, but you do feel sort of these big pitches. So I think that's not an accident. Uh, of course, it's also symbolizing graduation and celebration, but there's something about the quality of the sound and like the embodiment of the sound that I think is kind of important. And I think the fact that we saw them above Biddy's head suggests, okay, Biddy already had this revelation, which we know. So there is a little bit of foreshadowing in it of the realization that Jack is having and kind of lets us see like where we're likely to go next. The thing that I thought of when I was looking at this panel and considering it for this podcast was a phrase from the play Angels in America in the first part, Millennium Approaches, in Act 1, Scene 7, where these two characters have a meeting, and they're not two characters who know each other. They haven't met within the story. They're from what exists at this point in the play, two completely different branches in the story. And they meet in the common ground of one person's hallucination is another person's dream. And they have this conversation about how within the dream sphere, they are at a threshold of revelation. And this phrase, threshold of revelation, popped into my head as I was looking at looking at Jack's panel where he's saying oh and what I find really interesting about this little scene is that the revelation in that scene in that play which is verbatim your husband's a homo is like very unearned like the characters don't know each other and it's framed as this campy dream sequence where one of the characters is, is in fact in, in drag, like applying stage makeup. Within a play where the stagecraft mechanics, like the artificiality is supposed to be noticeable. It's a flimsy moment that is based upon nothing within the story. It's just moving the plot along via quippy dialogue. And I think it works because the dramatic artifice, like the intention of the playwright is foregrounded intentionally as an aesthetic. And the threshold of revelation is the play leaning into its own bad writing, stressing how contrived the play's magicality is. And I just find this to be really interesting in conversation with this moment in this strip, because as much as I think this is a really beautiful, really well-executed panel, and as much as I genuinely like this strip and have so much to say about it and am really excited, I think I would call this a threshold of revelation moment because there's nothing in the text to support it, really. It's full contrivance, the sort of theatrical magicality of, well, in order to move along, we need to have this revelation. And magically, unearned, this character is just going to have it. It's interesting that this is what comes to mind for me, because that play is a masterwork that is also just like a spectacular storytelling failure. The things that happen in it make no sense. 
but because it has this very keen gay aesthetic where everything is sort of suffused with a performative fantastic, it almost doesn't matter. It's indeed sort of the point. Yeah, I would say that that's the point of it is the sort of like lack of causality connected through mostly gay sex. But the lack of causality connected by mostly gay sex in Check, Please, I think, (laughs) is really not intentional. I think we're supposed to feel like things have led here. But I just don't fully buy that this is what's causing Jack to realize something that's going to alter the course of his life and cause him to do a 180 and run back to where he's come from. I really loved that you brought Angels in America into this. I think there's something really interesting happening here when we think about meta, meta textual cues and also genre and tropes. And I think that it's almost appropriate how, how meta or strange this moment is, but then isn't quite in the way that, for example, Angels in America completely gets away with how messy and strange it is. And Checklist doesn't quite. But for me, what came to mind also is there's been this Tumblr post going around recently where people talk about, quote, the italicized O. Like, it's all about the italicized O is, I think, one of the lines from the Tumblr post. And it's about this moment that happens in fanfic, but also in romance more broadly, where one character realizes their feelings for the other character and has this moment of almost silent revelation. And that's clearly what this moment is. Jack literally says, oh, so very clearly this is the italicized O, right? Which is a fanfic motif that I don't really like very much a lot of the time, although I think it works pretty well here. But briefly, right before this, we have that square dialogue bubble that's ownerless that should belong to Biddy but doesn't so we kind of have this obvious hand of the author she's telling us this is after several more goodbyes but it's clearly not Biddy talking because it does not connect to the last thing we heard him say therefore it's just ownerless that's god no it's not it's ngozi i think and so that makes this piece of the strip as Biddy runs away crying entirely outside of Biddy's awareness, which isn't, I don't think the first time this has happened, but it is the first really important time it's happened where the strip has become detached from Biddy's POV. So suddenly Biddy can't know what's happening unless Jack tells him later, but we don't actually see that on screen. So we don't know. And we have lost the plot of the vlog introduction. So there's no longer this framework that seems accessible. All of a sudden, we as readers are no longer aligned with Biddy or with Biddy's vlog audience. We're suddenly aligned with either, I guess, Bad Bob, if you know that Jack's in love with Biddy, or with Jack, if until this moment you didn't know Jack was in love with Biddy. You're kind of not aligned with either of them. You're kind of aligned with that authorial voice, so you're kind of in a metatextual space. Anyway, you can make an argument in all three of those directions, but basically the narrative suddenly shifts. I find that panel disorienting, which to me is appropriate given how disoriented Jack is in this moment, but I don't think it's purposeful. And then we end up in this moment where a romance comic is finally allowing itself to become a romance comic at the same moment that a character realizes he is in a romance comic, which is effective for the reader in some ways because they think knowledge of the genre which is something I've been talking about this whole time, I guess, and sort of like the way that this comic follows the the milestones of romance, whether or not they're earned narratively. Because we know what's coming, it ends up being this swelling expectation as a reader, and it sets up the tension that we're about to have fulfilled in the next strip. I am really interested in this sort of thing. I don't know how much this matters for people who aren't into like narratology, but I guess one thing that it's made me think of as we think of Revelation is that at the 
end of semester one of year two, we have a revelation because of Kent Parson, right? We have like a series of small revelations and then a new understanding of Jack's past in that moment. And now we have another revelation about Jack's feelings in the present. And I don't think it's an accident that those two moments are twinned, one at the end of each semester. And I think this moment of revelation, because it's fulfilled, sets up the expectation that that moment of revelation will also be fulfilled. And then of course it isn't. This is doing some work here in multiple dimensions. So do we accept that Jack has this revelation like this? And if so, what is he realizing? I accept he has this revelation because I accept him as a romance lead in a romance comic. Not because I think there's convincing causality for it necessarily. I think there's slightly more convincing characterization, causality or whatever for it if you read the Twitter, but it's not that much more convincing. But because I understand this comic to be fulfilling tropes, I accept that he has this moment of revelation. Do you? Textually? Yeah, I mean, it's happening, I I guess. It's what's supposed to be happening. Like, I understand, as you put it, that that's what we're supposed to be getting out of this. But I'm just not feeling, having reread this whole comic and thought about it in probably the most penetrating depth that anyone has ever thought about Chuck Please before, you and me. I'm just not seeing a convincing through line that Jack loves Biddy in a way that would prompt this kind of revelation. He has a little crush on Biddy, sure. He thinks Biddy is cute, sure. The idea that he's like, oh, and then he has to immediately bolt across campus because this is his soulmate, no. I think it's obvious that Biddy is infatuated with him, but it all seems very shallow based on what's actually here. They never actually have meaningful conversations and we just never see the process. So I don't entirely know that I think that I'm convinced, even though obviously, yeah, I mean, it's like what's happening in the comics. So like, sure, you know, I have to accept that it happened. But I think maybe the more pressing question for me is, What is it that Jack is realizing? Is he realizing that he's into Biddy? Or is he realizing that Biddy is into him? I always read it as him realizing that he was into Biddy. I think realizing that Biddy's into him would be like a really interesting way to take it. But that's not how I understood it. And it's not really how I understand it looking at it now. I think also there's something potentially interesting if you think about this idea of him getting a permission or nudge from his dad that the realization could be it's okay if I pursue this it won't end like last time or something so it's actually not about his feelings for Biddy or Biddy's feelings for him but it's kind of about the accessibility of it or something I think that's also possible and part of the reason I say that is in the blog post Ngozi writes up next remember those walls I built well which is of course a reference to Beyonce's halo remember those walls I built well baby they're tumbling down what do you think I think I saw this suggested on Tumblr sometime over the past year. I actually think it's a much lovelier scene if it's Jack is realizing that Biddy likes him. Perhaps that implies that Jack has some awareness of how he felt, but 
I think this sort of naturally leads into the place where we want to end up, which is this line, this iconic line that Bob plagiarizes from his friend. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I think this will help us maybe break this down a little bit more when you see the crazy place I'm going to take it. Absolutely. I think this exchange is true to what we know of Jack's character. Like hockey metaphors work on him. I buy it. He knows what that means because his dad is repeating something that he understands. Okay. But I think it's important to overanalyze this because I really feel like it's central and fundamental to this comic's ethos. And I think that ethos is the idea that taking individual risks and trying and wanting is everything you need to be successful and get what you want. Missing a shot is a moral failing somehow. I also think it's weird that Biddy doesn't take a shot here. He actually chickens out. And I think that's interesting to read as part of his overall arc. Like later on, he'll come to be very bold and build out himself in a stunning fashion and he will eventually take a shot. More on this, I think, in the next couple of strips when we talk about what happens later. But Biddy does nothing to earn this other than existing. It's the antithesis of Jack's experience in this moment. Meanwhile, the phrase itself, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Apparently, yes, this is in fact that Gretzky actually said. This is a real quote from him. It's not fully fabricated. But the original context of it was particular to hockey. Literally speaking, the context in which Gretzky gave this quote was that he'd been taking a lot of shots on goal this one season. And some journalist asked him why. And he was just like, well, logically, the more shots you take, the more likely you are to make goals. And in hockey context, that makes sense. I think when we start to pull out on this, the stakes in a hockey game are very low. Any given shot in any given hockey game is just not in the grand scheme of things that important. There's 82 hockey games. You get multiple shots in a hockey game and then there's 82 of them per season. So the stakes are very low. There's so many chances to take shots. If you take one and miss it, you'll almost certainly have another opportunity to take a shot. The cost of taking shots is very low because shots are very plentiful. And this, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take phrase has become wishy-washy, corporatized, inspo stock phrase. This is the kind of thing that some jock guy puts on his high school yearbook page. Logically speaking, it's true on the surface. You do have to create your own opportunities to succeed by acting when possible. But then the caveat to applying that to your actual life is it's not just acting when possible, it's acting when possible and advisable. Jack is somebody who will have infinite shots in his life. And so the weight of this is pretty slight on closer examination. First of all, he's already getting a hockey career because he was able to have multiple shots at us. And he likes Biddy, I guess, but the comic wants us to think they're meant to be together. But realistically, Jack is somebody who's going to have other chances to be in relationships. And more to the point, he would have other attempts or shots at going after Biddy. 
this isn't his only shot. He can go to lunch, go to Providence, have a night of sleep, and then call Biddy tomorrow or the next time he sees him or whatever. So it's not like his whole window is closing. But for somebody who's not in Jack's position, this is a lot riskier. For one thing, let's say Jack doesn't have, you know, I don't know, the benefit of being Jack behind him. And then instead of getting in the car with his parents, he runs off and tries to kiss Biddy and Biddy rejects him. Then he's ruining his whole graduation day. But for Jack, this seems to just not be a concern. There's also this weird idea underneath all of what's happening here. That the idea that if you just try to do something, you will get it as a reward for personal character is so upsetting to me. And I think that's admittedly partly because, oh God, I try at so many things and, you know, most of the shots I take end up not even do I miss them, but they rebound off something and hit me in the face. So in that sense... Yeah, okay, this isn't a very useful philosophy. But I also think what's annoying about it to me is that it's such an American exceptionalist narrative. Most people don't have the ability to take shots like this. Most people aren't really afforded that many shots. Most people have more to lose from taking shots than Jack does. But I think all of this kind of underscores this big American narrative that growth is necessary and fundamental. And while I'm aware that the conflation I'm making of putting yourself out there with economic speculation isn't something that Ngozi is intending per se. So like maybe it's slightly unfair. It is an ethos that is fully informed by the way risk is calculated in a market sense. That's the culture that this particular phrase has been assimilated into. You have to engage in big risks for big rewards. It's a financial concept that the more risk you're willing to take on in your financial dealings, then the more growth potential you have in the markets. That is why this phrase has gotten this second life outside of a hockey context, because it's in line with the way that we think about things culturally in America. And most of the people who tell stories about how they took a risk and they took a shot and they're glad they did because if they didn't take it, they definitely wouldn't have had the opportunity for growth. Are people who were successful, their risk panned out. The stories we hear about this are the stories where the person succeeded. They didn't lose very much. Either the risk was relatively low for various reasons, or the risk was high, but for whatever reason, their gamble paid off and they happened to come out quite far ahead. And we just hear this story over, over, and fucking over. And I think that Check Please effectively is continuing to trade in this unintentionally quasi-libertarian space where it just wants us to believe that the only thing that's needed to succeed is enough personal fortitude and purity to be willing to do something difficult and then everything will be okay. And I just don't like that. I just don't like that. It really upsets me. I think that normal people who live in the normal world, yes, sometimes you take risks on things. You take creative risks, you take financial risks, you borrow money to go to college, 
or you borrow money to buy a home, or you borrow money to start a business, or you risk endangering your friendship because you have a crush on your friend, any number of things that could essentially blow up in your face. This philosophy of you miss 100% of the shots you don't take leads people to make decisions that puts themselves in a potential for significant loss in a way that just taking a shot on goal in a hockey game doesn't really translate to. And so this entire concept had been sort of perverted in a way that it like wasn't originally meant when like Wayne Gretzky quipped it. And all of this is leading me at the end of this rant to basically say that thinking through all of this kind of made me start to think that this should have been more explicitly framed around Jack's sexuality because Starting a romantic relationship with a man 13 minutes before you get into a car with your NHL boss is a big fat risk, actually. And it's also so much more heartbreaking to think that Jack knew first, so to speak, and he did nothing about it until his anxiety-producing father gave him explicit permission to let himself have one thing. Then the comic's actual take of, well, he's just impenetrably, opaquely unself-aware. And I really wish that this comic wasn't so loosey-goosey, non-committal, and sort of like, oh, it only matters until somebody else cares about it, about Jack's sexuality. Because he goes to Biddy and he kisses Biddy. And if Biddy is just like, what are you fucking doing? Okay, fine. I I mean, he's, you know, always going to think about his graduation day as the day that he got romantically rejected. But it's like, he's eventually hot man who's going to have a million dollars or whatever. Like he'll, he'll find another boyfriend if he wants one sometime. But the much larger risk that he's undertaking, like the much bigger shot that he's undertaking actually has a lot more to do with the kind of systemic minefield that he's walking into starting his NHL career with this boyfriend. And I suppose we will see that the comic is not super interested in playing this out fully. I also think it's really interesting because it plays into conversation that we've had before about how in many ways Biddy is not a huge risk because of his obvious sexuality, the way which his masculinity is constructed as compared to Jack's masculinity, so on and so forth. Maybe as we kind of go forward and consider their relationship, it's worth considering through this lens, you know, again, what's being risked and what isn't, especially towards the end of year three, when some big risks happen. I'm obsessed with this reading. I think it's excellent. Wow. I think what I want to say is like risk like gender, is a spectrum. (laughs) And if you have to be gay during hockey, then yes, somebody like Biddy is a relatively, so to speak, harm reduction, risk reduction choice of partner. Some other partners. a risk. Okay, something really fascinating here, which is also, again, related to this claiming or rejection of agency on Jack's part when, you know, he needs his dad's approval to make out with a boy. And when he needs, you know, his mom's legacy, give him a place in the world. Like, I don't know, there's just something about that, which is really touching and deeply sad. And that's even with all of the, you know, sort of like safety nets that Jack has. It's still deeply sad. The safety nets are what make it sad in some ways. 
I mean, I really wish that we were reading these strips that like, on my first read through brought me so much joy and I was able to feel much happier about it. All I'm sort of seeing is the ways in which this story's inability to follow through on the complications embedded in its plots has really disarmed the whole comic for me. And like, I think the thing that's so frustrating is that most people who are hearing takes like the one I just vocalized, reduce it down to people are angry that Check Please is a happy story. And no, I'm not angry that Check Please is a happy story. I think you could could have gotten to the same exact ending to check please in a way that was better executed for embracing the conflicts inherent in the story. I think also the more that I'm thinking about this analogy-ish, I mean, whatever you might want to call it, of the market, I mean, that's part of the problem of the story too, is that the way that it's constructed, because it doesn't take those complications seriously, at times feels exploitative. It's not because Jack and Biddy aren't real people, but it takes advantage of real pain and real difficulty and homophobia that really exists and so on and so forth to tell a story without grappling honestly with what those things are and mean. So they provide stakes to the story, but they're never dealt with. That's to me as a reader feels a little exploitative and you know exploitative of my pain and what I'm bringing to the story or whatever. I don't think it's purposeful, but that's a reaction I'm having to it. So thinking of it in the context of the market is pretty interesting. And I would just remind people who make reductive points like, you hate this comic, which I have been told. I don't see them spending 20 hours a week making a podcast about it, so back off. It's not really 20 hours a week, but it is a lot. <laughs> it's not 20 hours a week, but some weeks is definitely like five to 12. Yeah, yeah. I just really feel like you brought me on a journey today and I appreciate it. Thanks. Any last thoughts, final thoughts, concluding thoughts, ending, ending wrap-up thoughts? I can't believe Jack wants his dom to wear a bow tie. Insane. Who's hot in a bow tie? I don't know. Okay. Well. <laughs> Sorry. That's what I came up with. I was just like, I was trying to visualize. I guess you can basically like choke somebody if they're wearing a bow tie. Maybe that's Biddy's thing as he's like, <laughs> okay, whatever. Okay, next time on Check Displeased. 218, goodbye for the summer, part one. I've been secret and you can find me on my Tumblr, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or my other Tumblr, S-K-R-T-O-M-G. Also, my fanfic, I've, I've got a new one coming soon, to Familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me on tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. I'm so excited for the fic that's, you know, coming down the pipeline. Is that that phrase? I don't know, but I'm very excited for it. So everybody be on the lookout. And where can people find this oh. podcast? They can find our podcast on wherever they're listening to it right now, but otherwise on Podbean and on Spotify or at check yeah, it is. Tumblr.com. Or at checkdisplease.xyz. Oh yeah, or at checks the check oh my god, checkdisplease.xyz. You know, uh, okay. we're we're making a website. 
Jovi Shark and company have been endeavoring to write our transcripts and we're we're trying. We're trying to to provide our fans with transcripts that can be admitted to the court in the as, in, as legal evidence. <laughs> so um, look out for that soon. It's not so easy, uh, especially considering like everything. But we're we're really pumped to like provide this resource that we've been saying we're providing for um, two calendar months. And yeah, my my friend Uki Spooky Fish wants to say goodnight. And he's looking forward to finding out what happens in the next strip of check, please. Me too. And on that note, good night. All right. Good night to me. Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit. <laughs>